because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Alex Epstein here to introduce you to the Progressive Energy Project. What is the Progressive Energy Project? Well, Progressive Energy is my new book coming out in the second quarter of 2013. And it's of particular interest to Power Hour listeners because it gives you and your friends and anyone else you want to influence, I think, a really, really effective tool, which is a book, a manifesto, about the knowledge of energy that you get from Power Hour, but also the philosophy, the unique big picture perspective that you get from Power Hour. Now, the reason why we have Power Hour is because it's so important to get you know, a detailed uh, understanding, but also a big picture understanding of issues like fracking, coal, nuclear, etc. But not everyone has time to listen to an hour podcast every week. And even if they do, it can be hard to put it all together. And that's what progressive energy does. Progressive energy is my term for the power hour philosophy of energy, for the Center for Industrial Progress philosophy of energy. And that's why I'm creating a book. Uh, now, creating a book costs a lot of time, costs a lot of money, and therefore, we have an offer for you. If you give $50 to the Progressive Energy Project, when the book comes out, you will get a signed, and if you want it, personalized uh, copy of the book. In the meantime, you'll get my new ebook, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, uh, which just came out and I think is pretty cool. And if you want to support the book even more, if you give $100, you'll also get a signed copy of the book Free Market Revolution by Yaron Brook and Don Watkins, who are our friends at the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, now, this was a book I had some involvement with, and it's definitely a really, really important book for understanding how to argue for freedom and capitalism in energy and anywhere else. So, signed copy of Progressive Energy, free ebook. Signed copy of Free Market Revolution if you want it. Can't miss. So go to industrialprogress.net, click on Progressive Energy Project, and help support us and get some really cool stuff as well. On this week's episode, we're going to take the second half of my debate on oil, dangerous addiction, or healthy choice with Dr. Dino Ress of the University of Wisconsin, held at the University of Wisconsin. And I won't, I won't say too much. I said a bit last week. Make sure to listen to last week's episode first if you haven't already. Uh, but this, this part of the exchange gets pretty interesting. And yeah, listen to it. Take notes. See what you think. Feel free to write me at alex at alexepstein.com if you have any comments. And I'll be back with a few thoughts on the other side. I have two minutes, okay. So I want to ask, you, during a previous debate you had with uh, Bill McKibben regarding ethics of fossil fuel use, you stated, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that no platform for renewable energy has ever displaced a single facility using fossil fuels. Do you still, do, do you remember that quote reference? Uh, that's a misquote. 
quote, if, if you can frame the question, I think it would be helpful to frame the question. I assume you guys all haven't seen that debate or committed it to memory. So just if you can frame the question in a way okay. that. So there was an interaction that you were having with Bill and you made a statement and it stood out to me whenever I was looking at the footage. And it was a statement that I think was pretty direct that you made. Um, he was trying to argue on behalf of renewables and you were more or less, this is my interpretation of your activity with him, was saying that renewables don't pose any serious kind of threat to um, uh, what I've called legacy fuels, but fossil fuels being used in the marketplace. And so I, I just wanted to point out for you here that 90 miles to the southwest of here is the 220 megawatt Nelson Dewey coal-fired power plant, which I had the wonderful opportunity to visit this fall. And it's owned and operated by Alliant Energy and it's slated to go offline in 2016. So they're gonna actually be bringing it offline. Now I'm gonna acknowledge up front, the reason they're doing so is because of the more stringent EPA standards that are coming out. So there is an element of government intrusion here that is leading to and precipitating to some degree the closure of this plant. But what I'm getting at is that Alliant has decided the facility is gonna be no longer profitable beyond the timeline. Um, Yet I don't hear them arguing that they're going to remove or reduce any of the nearly 1,200 megawatts of wind and solar and other power that they currently derive from renewables. Um, I just wanted to know if you wanted to comment on this situation or, or not. That's for you. I have zero in a second, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, time, 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 that section. So now we'll have a... Uh, I think, un unfortunately, in, in discussions of energy, there's uh, a really unfortunate tendency toward partisanship. Uh, and that's namely that I advocate coal, I advocate oil, I advocate solar. I advocate wind. Like where we as individuals or even energy commentators are supposed to be like these part, half partisan members of like the solar tribe or the coal tribe, and then we're also supposed to be visionaries. And, and what I've stressed is that I do not care about oil at all, except insofar as it's at the moment the best known way of doing things. Um, so if there are trends we can definitely argue about um, this, you know, this claim that oil will never go below $100 a barrel. Now, uh, I have quite a bit of expertise in the history of oil. This claim has been made so many times. If you're in that history, you just never say anything about oil because you really have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. But either way, if oil goes up, no problem. Then you use these these other fuels. But the point is, if you force the price of oil up, if, if the government does something that artificially forces it up, that means that people suffer. That means everyone in the world takes an unnecessary uh, pay cut. So again, we should have no partisanship, no favoritism, no subsidies, but we should recognize the reason why I wanted to have this debate is because I think as a society, we don't appreciate how much value we get from oil and the fact that we use so much of it is a choice and it's a choice that we make uh, as individuals and it's a choice that we can change over time as it's not the best but it has to be a choice and the flip side of that is is again uh, 
I really wish that the Dino would specify what he wants the government to do. If you just say, I'm going to stick up my finger and see where the winds blow, who's sticking up what finger and passing what law to restrict what energy? The government is not a debating society. It's not a discussion group. It's not a suggestion box. The government passes laws, and then people have to obey those laws. So the question is, should the government be passing laws restricting what we as free individuals decide or uh, create as the best? Or should it, should it leave us, you know, should we be able to do that? Or should the government dictate that? Should we have Obama saying, oh, Solyndra looks like a good company. Let's invest in that. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with the Solyndra existing. I have nothing, again, I have nothing against solar. I think it has certain technical aspects uh, that make it unlikely as the fuel of the future. And, and um, to get to what Dina was mentioning, in that debate, I stated the fact um, that, for example, in Germany, which is the world leader in solar, arguably, uh, Germany has replaced zero coal plants with solar, despite hundreds of billions of dollars in, in quote-unquote investment. And the reason that it hasn't, and it's not only not replaced it, it has over a dozen new coal plants under construction. And the reason is, is because that technology is simply not at a level. And I also argued in that debate that the people who are, who are saying we shouldn't use fossil fuels are also saying in general that we shouldn't use nuclear energy and hydroelectric energy, which are the two best sources of energy that emit no CO2. So if you think CO2 is a big concern, um, your number one enemy is, is most of the anti-fossil fuel movement, which has restricted the two, the two best forms of non-CO2 emitting energy. So I think the policy is clear. We should be free to choose the best. And if we are, uh, the only thing we can say about vision is how exciting would it be to have like the Steve Jobs of energy, you know, the Bill Gates uh, of energy. The next, uh, I think John D. Rockefeller is an incredible innovator. The next Rockefeller of energy. That's what we get when people are left totally free and when people like us have no power whatsoever to restrict their vision. Now, if Dino or I wants to go into the energy industry and create the next great energy, we should absolutely be free to do so. And if we think we have a good idea, we should try to get people uh, to, in to invest in it. But insofar, insofar as we're not putting ourselves out there and competing for consumers and competing for your hard-earned money, and we can prove ourselves able to benefit your life, honestly, we should shut up about what sorts of energy we think are good. Now, I can report on what's promising in the field, but I will never in my life tell someone what sort of energy they should use, neither a consumer uh, nor a producer, and I hope you see some of the reasons why. Thank you. So I want to thank you all for this for joining us this evening for this lively discussion about oil and more specifically the consumption of it and the pressing need to develop alternatives to it. I do believe that I have shown you just how barren the cupboard of ideas is for my, oppo my opponent and his position in this debate. Do not be swayed by his views that positions your frame of reference backwards in time. History can be a guide, but it need not be a shackled confinement for your opinions and attitudes about energy moving forward.
He's here to argue on behalf of an ideological principle. I get that. It may or may not appeal to you, but it is essential that you recognize how decidedly important it is to rationalize our consumption and use of resources through what is known, not what fantasies we would like to substitute in place of this reality. Fundamentally, we have entered an age in which cheap and easy oil is gone. And if we move forward with the same reliance on it that we demonstrated in the previous 100 years, I fear that we and our nation will part with great wealth and we will speak of more enjoyable times since past. We will be parsing irreverence, enmity, and envy toward other nations who, decide to, who decided to act more responsibly and in a more timely manner to capitalize on the potential that renewable energy systems afford us. So in parting, I would like to ask you what you want your energy landscape to look like in 20 years. It's fundamentally about vision. Are you satisfied with tremendous upward movement in prices that it costs to move yourselves, to move your foods and your products that you produce from point A to point B? Do you want the availability of food and medicine to be so decidedly dependent upon a single source that a $10 tick upward in the price per barrel could lead to family farms shutting down. And for many of the factories and labs that make antibiotics to close because their owners and operators determine that they're no longer operating at a profitable pace. If so, you might consider Alex's logic and ideological perspective to be valid and worthy of pursuing. But please recognize that what you're pursuing isn't running away from you, it's standing behind you. On the other hand, we have an opportunity that is genuine and unique in time and in economic space. We have the technical capacity to duplicate nature in a way that means we won't have to wait for an epochal transformation or passage of time to concentrate sunlight and make it available for use in various systems and operations that require energy to do work. Through various and diverse platforms, humans, we, the people, are slowly approaching an energy landscape in which leaves become our solar panels. And wind once again becomes a force for us to move from place to place. But instead of powering ships to move from one continent to another, it is charging the batteries that power the vehicles we use to travel to our mom's and dad's house on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Leave hydrocarbons in the ground. Make sure that they're available for future generations and that their use is largely dedicated to agriculture production, the development of medicines, and to improve our posture on national security issues. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. It's going to lose a bit of its drama, but um, so the question was: by subsidizing alternative energy, isn't the government increasing our freedom? No. And I think a, a good analogy would be: well, if the government randomly took our taxpayer money and gave it to competitors to the iPhone, 
that were chosen by Barack Obama or whomever else in his administration, would that be increasing our freedom? And no, when I saw that money coming out of my paycheck, I wouldn't say, oh, I feel so free that they took it to sponsor this uh, government-preferred thing. I would much, feel much freer if I could keep that money, and then if someone said, hey, I've got a great replacement for the iPhone, I could invest my own money. We have energy is just like any other market. Um, you know, you want, you want people to compete. You, you, know, you as the consumer choose, and, and people, um, you know, people earn what they get, so they're trying to produce uh, the best thing. And as a result, what, what happens with these government-funded so-called alternatives is that there's a huge amount of discrimination in favor of government, um, what the people in the government happen to like. So, for example, I'll take the example of, of wind power. Now, again, I don't do forecasts of the future, but so far wind power um, is, is one of the worst, most failed sources of power in modern history, just on an empirical basis. I mean, solar, you can at least heat hot water and you can do some stuff, like if you're off the grid. Wind power is almost, has proved almost completely useless uh, to human life. Now, again, people can pursue it on their own, but why, I was gonna, Take, use the Lord's name, even though I'm not religious, but like, why in God's name are you promoting wind power when nuclear, um, and by the way, I disagree with most portrayals of the, that it's unsafe. I think it's, it's actually um, safer than most things. Um, nuclear energy, if you, if you say oil is really concentrated, nuclear power has a million times the concentration of oil. In the 1970s, it emitted no CO2, and by some estimates, it was cheaper than coal. Again, anyone who cares about CO2, anyone who cares about the future of energy, needs to realize that the government discriminates incredibly against nuclear, makes it almost impossible to build. This is what happens with government-subsidized alternatives. This is why I want um, the I want us to I want free individual invested alternatives. That's what's bringing us plentiful natural gas, and that's what would bring us great nuclear and hydro technologies if the government would get out way instead of playing energy dictator. So my response to the question would be this. As a, someone who is teaching renewable energy systems, we do cover nuclear fuel. We do cover processes that are used to sequester it and how it's used in design of reactors and intimately knowledge, knowledgeable for all that. And I do have to tell you, I do agree with you, your assessment on efficiencies is nothing to dispute. It is a million times more dense than the nearest fuel that we have, which is coal. So that makes it great. But before we start banging the drum against environmentalists who, are, who supposedly stopped nuclear in its tracks, let's think about something, okay? We had a series of accidents that came online to a generation of people. I don't know how old you are, Alex, okay? But I remember in 1979 in inner city Chicago, I attended public schools, in addition to the tornado drills that we had to, to do, we were also in, required to perform nuclear safety drills in which you had to stop when you heard the bell, drop on the floor and get under your desk because a nuclear blast was imminent. So living with this kind of reality of the t word nuclear and what it represents has scared quite a few people. And there seems to be every 10 or 12 years an accident of e increasing lethality and pollution which sets back itself. So instead of blaming the environmentalist bogeyman for launching lawsuits and killing the nuclear industry, 
why don't we try and do more to engineer systems that are not failing every 12 years or put in environments where they're failing every 12 years to set these industries back? I have to be rude here um, because you, you, you took 30 seconds extra, so I'm going to steal 30 seconds. I apologize for being sure. rude, but I really, really need to clarify something you must know before you leave. A nuclear power plant cannot explode. If you could make a nuclear power plant explode now, in Fukushima you had, uh, you had generators that weren't nuclear explode on the side. If you could make a nuclear power plant explode, you would win a Nobel Prize because you would have discovered a new law of physics. Okay, so unfortunately, I mean, I'm really sorry, Dino, but you are being the environmentalist bogeyman. To compare a nuclear bomb, which has 90% enriched uranium with a power plant that cannot explode because it's 3.5%, this is exactly what has scared people into virtually banning one of the most promising energy technologies. And for a movement that supposedly cares about CO2 to practice this kind of pseudoscience is, is unbelievable. So, so moderate, I have to, we, we, we can go back and forth with this. So what I was trying to do was not be a bogeyman. What I was trying to do was set up the perspective for you, for a lot of people in a certain generation and generations past, and what the word nuclear has come to mean. And given the track record every 12 years of something demonstrably catastrophic taking place, okay? And, and, and that was my intent, not to go, ooh, nuclear is bad and a uh, plant can blow up, but we all saw on CNN, um, when seawater contacted the material inside, it generated hydrogen gas, that's standard chemistry, and that caused a buildup of pressure and that ex caused an explosion. Granted, the containment vessel didn't explode, the fuel wasn't necessarily transferred all over the place, but it did cause a breach. And there was nuclear radiation that was released from the plant and that I, I want to ask just, to, just as a test, how many civilians have died from nuclear radiation from power plants in the history, in the, in the civilized world, even inside Soviet Russia? I, you know, the only statistics I know of off the top of my head, and they're very rough and rudimentary, I don't have a, a charge reference or a source, but from what I understood, direct exposure at Chernobyl, 32 people died, and that was largely involved in cleaning up operations. And, I, I apologize for Zero people in Iraq radiation is completely shut down, and I think it's a tragedy. I'm going to invite Bob Aaron Powers to address the next question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so this question is for you. Um, why is it that a select few people should have their visions imposed on others? Talk about supply and demand, but would do good economists say that prices provide signals for what the best energy sources are? So the question, sorry, the question was why should certain people's divisions be imposed on other people's? And then I spoke specifically about supply and demand and what was, I didn't catch the end of that. Oh, um, just that wouldn't a good economist say that prices provide signals for what the best energy sources are rather than some well, I, I can't speak to what a good economist is or isn't because I'm not an economist, I'm a chemist. And I teach chemistry and engineering principles and energy-related issues. So I'll leave that for the economists to decide. But in terms of understanding macroeconomic, macroeconomic principles, supply and demand do have proven um, reliability in some arenas for some times. But then human behavior, being what it is, independent of things that are attempted to be imposed upon it or exposed from it 
um, decides to go in a different direction. And this is similar to a black swan event. You, it's unexpected. You can't reliably try and predict where human behavior is going to lead us. And so I would say that because of the reliability issue associated with human behavior, no one single person's vision should be imposed on anyone, but there should be at least a rubric, which is a common term that we use in education to more or less give us a directive, a list of directives of how we're going to grade assignments. We should at least have some kind of roadmap in place for where we might like to consider going and have constant near obsessive self-evaluation of whether we're meeting those goals or not along the way. No. Yeah, well, I could have put in that question, so I, I like it. Uh, let me just sort of talk about supply and demand in the context that I've, I've raised tonight, which is really a context of human freedom and human choice. So what, what does supply and demand mean? That, that's basically just, um, it's a way, economic way of understanding what happens when we freely trade with one another. And what it says about, say, if Dino is right, that the price of oil is going up and up and up, what it tells people is that um, oil producers are increasingly unable to supply us with the service that we get from oil, namely portable power or petroleum products. And thus, the higher that price goes, the more incentive there is um, for other people and the more ability there is uh, for substitutes. Anything else besides free individuals, like I, I really, really object to just vaguely talking about roadmaps. These are all euphemisms. At the end of the day, the government, government is going to have some policy. Either it's going to let us choose the best, or it's going to choose something for us. It's going to direct us. It's going to issue an order. So I need Dino to say what order he wants to be issued. And he can't just say, we vaguely need to come up with a roadmap, because that roadmap is going to hurt all of us. Hey, can I, can I follow up or no? Is that No, I'll, I'll pass. Next question. How do you justify negative environmental impacts of continued oil production from Australia? Okay, so I need to repeat that, right? Audra? Okay, so let me just make sure that I cover all of them. So there's the environmental impacts from fracking. Um, habitat destruction and something else. What was the something else? How do you justify negative environmental impacts of oil production from fracking and drilling habitat destruction? Okay, so let's, let's yeah, we haven't, um, this is something I thought would come up tonight, so I'm, I'm glad it, it's coming up now. Uh, we always need to be concerned with any technology using it in a way that protects everyone's rights. So the idea here is we're choosing the best form of energy but you don't want to choose it if it's ruining someone else's life. And name, and I, so you know, if you, if you are using oil in a way that harms me, that's not okay. So we need to have very clear laws about pollution that protect uh, everyone's property rights. That's part of the framework uh, of, of being free to choose. You have, you're free to choose, but within the context uh, of other people's rights. Um, now that applies differently to different contexts. So let's let's take the issue of, of hydraulic fracturing, which is a very big issue 
in the news. The basic laws with that should be, you're not allowed to contaminate people's land, you're not allowed to contaminate people's groundwater. Now, as, as an empirical issue, there's been a, a really big misrepresentation because um, the danger that is associated with fracking is not unique to fracking. Fracking is a very deep underground technology that's not anywhere near um, the water table. So when you're very, that deep underground, that's not affecting the water table. What can affect the water table is when you drill near the water table. Um, and this happens with every technology. So for example, in China, when they're mining the materials to make wind pills, windmills and solar panels, they contaminate the water to the point of killing certain people. So there's nothing unique about oil and gas. We just need clear laws against contamination and aggressive prosecution. What we can't have is pseudoscientific laws that demonize again, like nuclear, like um, fracking. We need, our policy needs to be non-discriminatory. So we need to have certain levels of safety standards, of pollution standards, and they need to be uh, applied equally to all technologies. Now, habitat destruction, uh, that raises the whole issue of how you think about habitats, how the government deals with habitats. It's a big issue, um, but basically I think that should be mostly a matter of, um, I mean, whoever owns the land in which the habitat is in has a right there. So if it's, you know, I don't think the government should own, the government owns one third of the land, which I think is ridiculous. But even insofar as the government does own that land, if someone is polluting it, then the government has a claim against it. So again, you just want to objectively, scientifically respect people's rights. That's the, that's the basic so here in the state of Wisconsin, I don't know if anyone reads the Wisconsin State Journal, there was an article about a week ago about a landowner up north who owned uh, a very large parcel of land and he applied for this land to um, exist as a, uh, a public use land. So basically what it was, this 1,200 or so acres was um, dedicated to be, he promised he would allow hunters and other people to recreate on his land. But what he then proceeded to do was buy up much smaller parcels of land around it and then form limited liability companies that represented each one of those lands individually and effectively sequestered that land from public use and recreation because no access was provided to it. So this is one of the ways and loopholes that people will use to restrict access to their land from either government sources or from monitoring or from other people in which they'll be able to do whatever they want on it. So they might be polluting, they might be mining, they might be doing whatever they want, but there would be no way to verify, to monitor, to even determine whether they're causing an incident. The first thing you would get would be something downstream. Someone's well would be polluted, something in the river would be dying off. These are first line indicators that something's taking place that's amiss. And so too often we have too many stories in which environmental, environmental degradation takes place and we're only seeing it whenever a whole bunch of frogs die off or when a whole bunch of fish show up dead on the side of a river or a whole bunch of birds drop out of the sky. Now, with particular respect to fracking, okay, I'm not gonna argue against a particular energy source, but I am saying that as a chemist, a lot of the materials they use to pump into these wells. So what they do is they inject an intense amount of air pressure into the bedrock to fracture it and create all these veins. And then what they do is they need that rock, to, those veins to stay open. So they use good old Wisconsin sand, 
wine from just south of Eau Claire. They mix it up in a slurry and they pump it down into the well to keep these fractured, these fractured veins open so the gas will then seep out because it's less dense and it makes its way up the wellhead. And I will tell you the propants, P-R-O-P-P-A-N-T-S is the technical term that they use in these wellheads are very toxic. And there is just concern there. If any of you have seen these documentaries in which people are opening up their water and turning on their water tap and then basically lighting it on fire because there's volatile organic compounds creeping up from the water table, those VOCs have to come from someplace. In a lot of cases, people are paying individually out of their own pocket, departing with their own wealth, to have these tests done because companies refuse any kind of accountability for it, government doesn't step in because more or less they really haven't really wanted to demonstrate a knowledge of what's going on. So it's a very serious issue and I think that it's great that we have more natural gas on the marketplace, but I just think that from, we have to take serious the, the concerns that property owners, homeowners, and other people have with how the environment is affected by it. I just want to stress, again, the basic framework is property rights, so in a sense I agree with, with um, some of what Dino said, um, but it's, it's very, very important to be scientific here, and I mean, Dino invo has invoked repeatedly uh, his chemist, um, but going on. We have had a million wells fracked. This technology has been around since the 40s. A million wells and not one proven incident of groundwater uh, contamination. Uh, in terms of saying that the propent, um, or, I mean the propent in my mind is one of the most unbelievable technologies of the modern era. What the propent allows you to do is you can turn rock that contains oil, but that it was so tight you could never get it out, and you can open it up and you get tons of oil and natural gas. That's why right now we're expected to outproduce Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and oil within the next 10 years. All this natural gas. And in terms of the chemicals, the term chemical should not be a bad word. The only question is, at a given concentration, is this chemical, whether natural or man-made, is it dangerous? And in most cases, um, this is being completely exaggerated, or they're taking incredible, I know a lot of the people in this industry, they're taking incredible pains to prevent it. This is one of the safest things that's going on in our country, and we should not demonize it because it's, it's really helping us. Uh, this question is for Dino. Um, if other choices such as electric cars are so great, why do they need to be subsidized? The question is if, okay, uh, if electric cars are so great, why do they need to be subsidized? They don't need to be subsidized. Toyota sells a hybrid vehicle that it just benefits, it applies subsidy to it so that it can benefit its price point. And that's why there are so many Priuses, especially if you drive around the Madison area, you see a lot of people driving Priuses. Um, they become very popular, okay? Even outside of the Madison area. So a lot of these things don't necessarily need to operate on subsidies, but subsidies act to nudge the marketplace, the population, the consumers into a direction. You can choose not to follow it. It's not like somebody is putting, you know, some element of lethality. They're putting a gun to your head saying, go buy an electric powered car now. Okay, no one's doing that. Government's saying, but if you wanna consider this, we think this is a good idea, so there's a $2,500 credit. Use it or don't use it. We're not going to outlaw or ban 
Chevrolet from selling gas-powered vehicles. We just think that, you know, if they want to put an electric vehicle on the market, that will help to advance technology and research into things like batteries and regenerative technologies and so on and so forth. Here's a $5,000 tax credit. And so that varies from state to state as well. States will add their own incentives on top of it. So even here in Wisconsin, under the conservative regime that we have, you can still get a pretty sizable tax credit if you purchase an electric vehicle. So even in different political climates, people have recognized that subsidies can be a very powerful tool to help affect change in consumption. Uh, okay, so the Prius is you're talking about giving someone or letting them keep an extra twenty five hundred five thousand that's uh, that's a preference, but I just want to be clear to the the questioner. I tried to stress I have absolutely nothing against electric cars. There are a lot of really cool things about electric cars, and if they were cheap enough, I would get one so it's this is not at all about picking oil based cars or electric cars it's about the freedom of the best people to compete to offer us uh, the best product. And in, but it's completely arbitrary to say, oh, we should subsidize electric cars. An electric car, it's wrong to call it even electric car. If it's a coal plant that's electricity, it's a coal car. Okay, so if you're driving an electric car, you're either driving a coal car or a gas car. Or if you're extremely rich and you pay $100,000, maybe you're powering it by uh, solar. So, and there is a gun to your head, by the way. It's, it's your tax money being taken away to subsidize someone else's scheme that electric cars are good. What I'm saying is electric cars should compete with gasoline cars, natural gas cars, methanol cars, and let innovation and freedom reign. One final question. Okay. Last question. Why should we give consumers the freedom of choice when they have continued to choose irresponsibly? Why aren't they looking long term? really tempted to ask that person to raise their hand. I mean, what does that mean? I, I, I disagree. Well, let's put it this way. There's not one of us in this room that you couldn't say, We've made, we haven't made bad choices. Everyone has made bad choices. And one of the common arguments for government interference is, oh. I high, let's say I was doing it, I high and mighty Alex can point out that you might have bought a vehicle that might not have been your best interest. Well, there's a really, you know, there's a whole part of the Constitution that completely solves this problem, and it's called freedom of speech, right? So if I think you're making a bad decision, I can tell you, I can persuade you. There's been no problem in history of too much freedom of speech. The problem in history has been too much coercion, too, much, too many people thinking, I have a bright idea we should use electric cars. But it's not just that. I want to be clear. It's not just, do we give this tiny subsidy? If that were it, I promise you I would not be. It's that the government is seriously considering, like in the cap and trade bill that almost passed, an 80% reduction in fossil fuels. That's an 80% reduction in oil with nothing remotely close to replacing it. The government passed a law to mandate a certain amount of ethanol, and it made it legally mandatory to produce a certain ethanol. By the time that mandate on that form, ethanol did not even exist. Like it could, literally could not be produced. This is, this is what happens when little Caesars or big Caesars are controlling our economy instead of uh, allowing freedom of choice. So freedom of choice, 
brought us the iPhone, skyscrapers. It, you know, it brought us so many amazing things about the American way of life. So to look at Americans and to look at them in general and to say, oh, these are just a bunch of people who make bad choices, I think that's ridiculous. And I wish all you, know, each one of you has the right to make the choice on how to live your life. And I wouldn't agree with all of them, but guess what? It's, it's your life, it's not mine, and it's not the questioner's life. So, Alex, the government rarely does anything right, okay? Except when it does. And think of a few cases where the government maybe has acted in our best interest and the best interest was indeed served. Um, in the 1960s, mandatory food labeling, okay? Food industry, ag industry did not think it was especially important for you to know what you were consuming until the government came along and said, throw ingredients on the label, okay? People have a right to know. And then they did that, now it's commonplace, we take that for granted. Um, following that up a little bit later, um, industry didn't respond to remove lead from paint. They kicked and screamed against it until they were told they were forced to find an alternative and they developed titanium pigments that replaced lead. Um, industry, to combat anti-knocking and gasoline, decided, hey, we'll use tetraethyl lead. We'll put that in the gas because that makes the engine stop knocking and increases their performance. Industry didn't come out with a mandate to remove lead from their gasoline blends. Government did that, okay? One other thing, the EPA, the much maligned organization over the last year and a half in the campaign trail, mandated reduced sulfur emissions um, from coal-fired power plants back in the 1970s. And as a result, there are thriving forests in northeastern Ohio, upstate New York, Smoky Mountains in Georgia that we all recreate and use and have a wonderful time in. This is because their death was prevented from acid rain. So that's all I'm gonna say with my time. I think that the government on occasion does act in our best interest and that best interest is served occasionally. Well, okay, I'll go stronger. I love the government. I am grateful that the Romans evolved rule of law and government is one of the greatest achievements in human history. But it's an achievement that has one purpose, and that's to protect our rights. So when it protects people against lead poisoning, that's good. When it allows people to dictate how we live our lives, how we get our energy, when it dictates a global pay cut, because some people think they have a better idea and can impose it on us, that's bad. So government is great, rights are great, violent rights, bad. Let's get a round of applause for All right, I hope you enjoyed the rest of the debate between me and Dr. Dino Ress. I want to just close by talking about an idea that came up repeatedly during this debate, which was the idea that I put forward about how the key issue is, are you free to use the best source of energy that mankind knows how to produce? Uh, and the idea there is that if you're not, then you're necessarily taking some kind of hit. And the concept that I, I use for this these days is I call it uh, progressive energy, progressive energy. Now, this is in contrast to a lot of the different concepts of energy that are often used, such as renewable energy, sustainable energy, 
green energy, clean energy, uh, etc. And as I've discussed on very past shows, I think those are all very, very flawed uh, notions. So the idea of progressive energy really encompasses two basic things. One is the focus on the best. And by the best, I mean what promotes human life the best. And part of, part of, part of understanding that means looking at the full context of any given energy source. So I, I like to use the example of, of smoke and fire. When you first discovered fire as an energy source, you can't say, oh, it's not good for human life because there's smoke. Because on net, fire was just, uh, you know, was the, was the ultimate technology. It just completely revolutionized life for the better. And by the same token, if you can only have a modern standard of living uh, with fossil fuels, and certainly with fossil fuels and nuclear power, then that, that's such a positive that any negatives, almost any conceivable negatives, leaving aside Hollywood hysteria scenarios, those are things that you have to, you have to be on the premise of minimizing. But it can't be, you're going to say this energy source that makes everyone's life possible is bad because there's some negative aspect. That's like saying, well, you shouldn't be able to take the best kind of medicine because there's some side effect. Well, no, you want to minimize side effects, but you, you always need to be able to use the thing that best promotes life. So that's, that's one aspect of it, what best promotes life, and then as a sub-aspect, always looking at the full context. Now, the other aspect of this that is, I think, distorted is the issue of the long term. So there's this view that, okay, well, we're using, we're using oil because it's the best now, but, but what about the future? And my view on that is that's like saying, well, we're using the iPhone 5 now, or a lot of us are, because we think it's the best, but what about the future? And the answer is, well, if people are left free, in the future, we'll, we'll use something better. Now, there's this, this view that, oh, well, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain finite oil and gas and coal and, and nuclear are finite, and then the, whereas the sun and the wind are renewable and infinite. Now, that's not a true characterization, but even imagine, even imagine that it was a true characterization. Well, then the progressive energy policy would mean as long as you have enough of this stuff where it's the best, you use it, and then as, as you're unable to produce enough of it um, you know, to, um, for people to get it at the low prices that they want, the prices, you know, the prices will go up, and then these other quote-unquote renewables will substitute. And there's no argument whatsoever that you know, Barack Obama or some French politician is going to be able to better, better make and manage that transition than people who are just you know, than just people on the free market. These kinds of transitions are made all the time. For example, with with power plants, oil used to be a major power plant fuel, and then it became too expensive as a power plant fuel. It was better used as a portable fuel because that's where it's really really good. And most distinctively good, and that was you know that transition, that transition happened. So there's human ingenuity. All that we need is for at any given time human ingenuity um, to be free, and then as consumers to be able to pick out the best. And what that means, all things being equal, is that we will get better and better uh, and better 
energy. Now, this is in contrast to the idea of quote-unquote renewable energy or sustainable energy, which says that we should pick the kinds of energy not that are the best, not that are going to best promote human life now, that in the name of some future, we should, we should pick fuels that could somehow last forever. Now, there's no forever on anything, so we have to realize everything in the universe is finite. The sun is just one giant nuclear fusion reaction, which we expect to last for about uh, 5 billion years and be emitting photons toward the Earth that carry a certain amount of raw energy. Uh, but by the same token, if you added up the amount of raw energy in all the atoms on the Earth, that's a lot more than the sun will ever give us. So why, why privilege the sun? You might say, well, well, we don't know how to get the energy of, of all of those atoms. Like th This is signified in the equation E equals mc squared, that there's so much you know, energy and mass are, 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 from a certain perspective, interchangeable. So there's so much, like in a swimming pool, you know, there's just some, so, so much energy. And you say, well, yeah, you can't, but we don't know how to do that. And exactly, the point is we don't know how to do it from the sun, not in a very good way. And that's why when, if we do, if we do before the technology exists, and, and that might be, it might never exist to do it to be the best, then, then we're, we're guaranteeing that people suffer unnecessarily. So there is no reason why, the, the focus should not be how long can we imagine that if it worked, the source of raw energy would last us a long time because the world is just full of raw energy. That's not the challenge. The challenge is can you transform that raw energy into the best kind of usable energy? Can you transform it into uh, progressive energy? So, you know, whether, oil, you know, whether you can produce oil cheaply for 100 years, 500 years, 10 years, it does not matter in terms of what the government should be doing. The government should be staying out and allowing people the freedom to produce the best. And that process, that's a, that's a progressive process. And that's different from the ideal of a sustainable process because sustainable implies you're going to be doing the same thing over and over. And that is simply, a, it's a false ideal. It really only uh, applies to animals you know, who have this kind of circular life where they do the same thing over and over and who live very, very modest lives, which, you know, with very, very high death rates and that are very, very precarious. But for us, we continuously are transforming one part of the earth that's not valuable or less valuable into something more valuable. For example, with, with, uh, with a wind turbine, we use what are called rare earth uh, metals or rare earth elements and that helps us make the magnets. Now, once you get a, a certain rare earth element, you know, you, you, you've used it for that purpose and it wears out and then you have to go get another one. Now, what if, now there's a lot of these in a sense, they're, not, they're only rare in that they're not very dense in the earth. It's not, there's a lot of them. It's just they're, they're expensive to get because they're not very dense. Um, but in any case, like let's, you know, there are other things that are more remote. Uh, sometimes you have to get them at the bottom of the ocean for certain things, and that in certain state-of-the-art solar plants. So you're always you're always dealing with the fact of there's a finite, there's there's no infinite. So there's you know the finite amount of stuff in the world. Once you've used it, you know, once you've used it, it doesn't just work forever. So you you keep needing to find new stuff. And the beauty of human ingenuity is that left free it can find new uses for useless raw materials 
faster than we can use raw materials. That's the trend, and it's been the trend even though there's a lot of, a lot of government restriction. It's time to stop looking at energy in terms of we want to use something that nature gives us forever. No, there is no forever in that sense. Nature doesn't give us energy. We produce energy using human ingenuity, and we do it progressively better. We make progressively, we make the raw materials of the earth progressively more valuable. We create a progressive number of resources, turning a raw material such as uranium, which used to be useless, into resources. So we are we're growing resources uh, when we're when we're looking at energy in this progressive way. Now, in terms of a, of a policy, how do we get progressive energy? Really, it's just we protect property rights. So you define. You know, you allow people, you respect their right to buy and use land to produce energy and to be free to do so. And then you respe respect the rights of, of other people to you know, not be coerced, not be, uh, not be stopped in their own lives by that production of energy. It's a standard point of, of you, can, you can exercise your right uh, but that that you know the limit of that is you can't infringe on the rights of others, and there, as I indicated, there are technical details to how do you define that and when when is a right infringed. But the basic idea is you own your own life, you own your own property, you can use it the best way you see fit, and others are free to do the same. And when that happens, what you get is is each individual can max out his ingenuity. You can get the best type of energy possible, and your standard of living goes up, and that includes your your environmental quality goes up. So progressive energy. Uh, and that's actually the, I think it's, it's really important to think of it that way. So that's actually the tentative title of my first book, which is coming out uh, fairly early next year called Progressive Energy. And it's all about how thinking this way about energy changes a lot, I think, for the better and how it applies to things like coal, oil, uh, natural gas, um, and, and also some of the ideas I think are wrong, such as renewable energy, green energy, sustainability, etc. Now, if you're, um, if you're interested in that, you can learn more at industrialprogress.net. Uh, there will be you know, a link about the book Progressive Energy. And besides that, that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed the McKibben debate. I hope you enjoyed this debate. Uh, I expect to be doing more debates in 2013. If you have any suggestions of partners or you want to be involved in, in helping put an event together, for sure contact me at alex at alexepstein.com as always. Questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, alex at alexepstein.com. And I will be back soon with another guest, another interesting issue. Until next time, this is Alex Epstein. And this is Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.